All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this financially viable. The sponsors for our second hour today are American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Halio Resources, Lucky Strike Resources, Metanor Resources, Millrock Resources, Palangio Exploration, and Rye Patch Gold. Well, I'm pleased to have with me this afternoon Patrick Laracy. Uh He's a geologist and president and CEO of Vulcan Minerals. Vulcan Minerals trades in Toronto under the symbol VUL, and you can buy it in the United States over-the-counter market under the symbol VULMF, approximately 57.2 million shares outstanding. And stock trading in the 20 to 25-cent range means it has a market cap of less than $15 million, in spite of the fact that I think it has some real promising uh, prospects, and we're going to get to that a little later. Uh, I want to, uh, Patrick to talk about about the company, but... The main reason I wanted to talk to him today has to do with uh, this enormous shale gas play in the United States. Uh, just a little background, though, before we uh, before I introduce uh, Patrick. Um, as I said, he is the president and CEO of Vulcan Minerals. He has had extensive experience as both an exploration geologist and lawyer. He is a director of the Chamber of Minerals Resources for Newfoundland and Labrador and a former president of the Newfoundland and Labrador Explorationist Association. He has 25 years' experience in the petroleum and mineral exploration business in various capacities. In particular, he has had a lot of experience, more than 20 years, in exploring sedimentary basin basins of various places around the world. Well, welcome, Patrick, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Uh, glad to be here. Really good to have you with me. You and I had lunch a few weeks back in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland, when we both uh, attended and participated in a conference there. Uh, I'm interested in your company, as I say, Vulcan Minerals, because I think it has a lot of potential compared to its current market price. And so uh, we, we really want to focus on that, and in particular the potash potential and the spinoff of that. But from a macroeconomic perspective, what really uh, was interesting during our lunch discussion in St. John's was the enormous shale gas supplies that exist in the United States. So I'd like to focus on that topic, if you don't mind, uh, before we talk about Vulcan Minerals. Uh, I I took a look at the map of the United States uh, that shows five major gas shale plays in the United States. There's the Bakken, the Barnett, uh, the Eagle Ford, the Haynesville, 
and the Marcellus plays. And, you know, what struck me, obviously, is that these plays are sandwiched, or not, I don't know if that's the right word, but are contained within the two major, pretty much between the two major mountain ranges in the United States. Uh, most of our listeners may not be all that familiar with geology, uh, so I'm wondering if you could just perhaps describe to our listeners what kind of geological environment uh, is suitable and might explain why these uh, plays are located where they are in the United States. Yeah, well, Jay, the uh, the shale revolution, I guess, is a good word to use, uh, that's occurring uh, around the world, but particularly in North America, uh, is a function of uh, technological advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shales traditionally, of course, from a geological perspective, we know that they are the source rock for oil and gas. In other words, they are the sink into which the organic matter has been deposited. Mm-hmm. And as it is buried, uh, as it undergoes certain pressure temperature uh, conditions, it expels petroleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that produces uh, the conventional oil and gas uh, deposits that we're all familiar with mm-hmm. and we've been depleting for perhaps uh, in excess of 150 years. Uh, what has changed in the last, I guess, about 10 years is the ability to extract oil from the actual source rock itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally, you couldn't do that because the source rock does not have the adequate porosity and permeability. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the volume space space that would contain that oil and gas. Mm-hmm. It does contain oil and gas on a very, very small scale. Mm-hmm. And the challenge always was is to extract that oil and gas. Uh, the technological advancement which allows this to happen is the fracking process. And in a nutshell, what that is, it's an injection of fluid into the shale rock, which inflates the shale and uh, creates uh, a new plumbing system, mm-hmm. enhances the permeability in that rock, which allows the gas and oil to flow into the well bore mm-hmm. and uh, up to surface. Mm-hmm. And that's allowed these huge geological deposits of shale to be classified as uh, reservoirs today. Mm-hmm. And this has had a tremendous uh, impact on the available petroleum uh, in North America. Mm-hmm. Well, we haven't really exploited uh, this, uh, the, these shale gases to any great extent yet, have we? I mean, no, what uh, extent are they being, have, are they being um, produced at this stage? At this stage, the production is, is uh, increasing uh, significantly, and it's displacing conventional gas production. We're seeing conventional gas production in the United States in particular decreasing, um, a large part of that coming from the Gulf of Mexico. And we're seeing uh, uh, increases probably on the order of 5 to 6% per year of gas production from shale plays. Uh, and that's been climbing steadily in the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's making a significant impact on uh, the uh, the market dynamics. Mm-hmm. For example, over the last few years, if you were to look at the amount of production in the United States, we're looking at about you know, 22 uh, trillion cubic feet of gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the consumption is just above that. Uh, around 24 trillion cubic feet. The shortfall 
the shortfall is met uh, through imports, primarily from Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you're seeing in, in, in Canada right now, which is interesting, is that the demand for Canadian gas is, is going down because uh, continental USA has its own supply of gas, uh, gas production increasing as a result of the uh, shale reservoirs. Mm. And in mm. fact, uh, some of the Canadian pipelines heading into the United States are uh, under capacity and being underutilized mm. because the market is, is, has disappeared. In fact, um, in northwest uh, Alberta and British Columbia, up in the Horn River Basin, uh, the uh, producers up there, uh, including Apache and several other larger companies, are looking at uh, putting a pipeline to the Pacific coast across uh, the Rockies into the coast of British Columbia so they can export the gas by way of uh, liquefied natural gas, or LNG, mm-hmm. which effectively is the natural gas compressed uh, to the extent on the very uh, very uh, cold temperatures uh, that it uh, it goes into a liquid form mm-hmm. and uh, can be uh, transported by ship in containers. Mm-hmm. Well, there was another pipeline uh, that's being that's under discussion. There's some question as to whether the U.S. will allow it to be built, coming bringing oil down from the oil sands down into I guess down into to the Gulf. Uh, do you have any idea where that's going, and, and is that perhaps uh, being impacted also by these natural gas uh, resources in the U.S.? I mean, in other well, words, well, yeah, yeah, the oil sector is is a little different dynamic. We haven't seen the massive increase in terms of reserves uh, for oil in North America, other than some. Of, there are oil shales, of course, the Bakken being perhaps uh, the preeminent one uh, in North Dakota. Uh, that is turning out to be a very prolific field. Uh, and it is contributing, in fact, to uh, increases in uh, American oil production. For example, in the last two years, um, annual field production in the United States has gone up. And uh, oil production in the United States peaked around 1970 and has been on a downward trend ever since, except for the last two years. And that additional production uh, impact is primarily coming from the oil shales. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is an impact on the oil side. The pipeline you're referring to mm-hmm. is meant to carry uh, oil from the Canadian oil sands right. Uh, right. down to the refining uh, heartland down into the Gulf right. and okay. to get uh, an avenue of access uh, along that pipeline. I think the issues with that are, are, are surmountable. Uh, I think it's a lot of it has to do with obviously legitimate environmental concerns that local people have and local mm-hmm. uh, stakeholders have. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be a deal breaker. I think it's uh, something that has to accommodate the specific mm-hmm. local interests of those stakeholders. Okay. Well, uh, I, I probably shouldn't have gone there on that topic because we don't have all that much time, and I want to stay focused on the shale gas uh, situation again. Yep. What? Do, do, is there some sort of sense or estimate as to what, how large this might be, how, how big these, these various uh, formations, how much natural gas uh, they, they may contain? Well, it's very difficult to put numbers to this, uh, simply because we're still, at early, we're still at the early stages in understanding uh, how much gas is potentially uh, in place within these shales. Uh, but more importantly, how much can you extract? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the recovery factor on the uh, the shale plays uh, could be uh, less than 10% mm-hmm. on, on a primary basis. In other words, after you frack these shales, how much gas are you going to actually get out? Can you get out? Uh, yeah. It may be, it may be uh, less than 10%. Now, there may be ways to enhance that, rec- enhance that recovery. That's on an average basis. Mm-hmm. As a developer, companies are always looking for those parts of the shale deposits, which are the sweet spots, if you will, uh, which will flow at higher rates. That's always the objective, of course. Uh, so depend, depending on who you believe uh, as to their estimates of recoverable gas. For yeah. example, the head of Chesapeake Energy, which is uh, maybe the biggest gas producer, producer in the U.S., um, has come out and said the equivalent of four Saudi Arabias mm. have been discovered. Discovered. Uh, it, uh, yes, discovered in the shale deposits in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Uh, what recovery factory, uh, factor is going to be on that, I think, is still still early days to make long-term projections on that. But that gives you some idea of the scale. This is a game, cha- this is a game changer. Yeah. Uh, and in effect, it's going to have significant economic uh, consequences mm-hmm. because yeah. the United States is going to be uh, self-reliant in, in natural gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, as, as we just discussed, uh, uh, Canadian sources and, in fact, some American sources will be looking at exporting natural gas. Mm-hmm. And when you have that en- energy source at home, mm-hmm. it's going to change the, the dynamic of your economy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a this is a very very important issue, and I have to think it also might have some geopolitical implications too, because when we look at some really big, powerful companies in the United States, taking Exxon Mobil and others, uh, I suppose Marathon and a bunch of those big oil companies that have that are so big. I mean, there's some some belief on the part of more cynical people, and I would probably fit into that group, uh, that a lot of our foreign policy has much to do our our occupation of or at least our presence in 140 countries around the world has something to do with our economic interest in various parts of the world. And you have to wonder if there might not be some vested interest in not developing natural gas uh, in the U.S. because of some of those interests. Uh, yeah, I guess we could only speculate yeah. to uh, foreign policy in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. But I well, think the key to natural resource uh, in North America is accepting the fact that we do have a secure supply. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges with the u- utilization of natural gas historically is that the price was so volatile. Mm-hmm. You could have price swings from three dollars a thousand or an MCF a thousand cubic feet up to fourteen or fifteen dollars on an annual basis. Very difficult for. Uh, industrial users mm-hmm. uh, to enter into that market when they don't have long-term price st- stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons being is that uh, up until recently, up until we've had these shale sources, um, we were running out of conventional natural gas sources. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult to predict what mm-hmm. the supply would be. Mm-hmm. And hence that led to the volatility in prices. So with the secure supply, uh, we now know that the price of natural gas is going to be somewhat predictable. And as a result, I would expect that you're going to see an expansion on the demand side. More and more industrial users, domestic users, 
will convert to natural gas knowing that it's a secure supply of energy at a very competitive price, mm-hmm. you know, much more competitive than, uh, than oil, for example. Mm-hmm. So they may be at, able to enter at today's the, prices. So they may be able to enter into long-term contracts even, possibly. Exactly. And, and you're seeing it already. Um, uh, over the last uh, two years, the biggest single increase in the use of natural gas, for example, in the United States, has been um, electrical generation. Mm-hmm. So more natural gas is, is being used to generate electricity. Are they switching from coal and oil, or, or how are they, both. What are they switching from? It, it's, it's, it's displacing both, mm-hmm. the, both coal and oil. Mm-hmm. And the reason being very simply, it's, it's cheaper, and of course it, uh, it's more environmentally friendly as well because mm-hmm. the emissions uh, uh, implications are a lot less with natural gas, certainly compared to coal and, and oil. Mm-hmm. We had so it's, the, a win-win, it's a win, win-win situation. Yeah. We had on the first part of today's show uh, a discussion with Amir Nani, who's the president of Uranium Energy Corporation, and his, his feeling, of course, uh, well, in the U.S., is that uranium and, and nuclear power is certainly not a growth industry here. For sure, it is growing in China yet, despite the problems in uh, in Japan, uh, the natural disasters that they've had over there. But uh, do you, you know, there are a lot of aging nuclear power plants in the U.S. Do you see the pot? Now, I know that's a big difference. You can't just convert those. But do you yeah. see the possibility of natural gas picking up some of that slack in the uh, production of electricity in the United States, possibly in the future? Well, yeah, I, w- I, would, I would speculate that that's uh relatively large shoes to fill. These sure. nuclear uh, generating plants are very substantial uh, generators of electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, to supplant those would be a major step. Yeah. Uh, I, I think any integrated, yeah, any integrated um, sources of electricity would uh, continue to be uh, uh, multi-sourced. You're going to have mm-hmm. uranium, of course, you're going to have nuclear reactors, you're going to have a hydro, of course, you know, Hydro is, is very favorable. Uh, a lot of it is, is currently used in the United States and Canada. Um, coal is still the largest single source, I believe, yeah. of electrical generation uh, power in the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, I think Probably. the target for natural gas is really to replace coal. Coal. Well, speaking, the natural gas prices are really uh, suppressed now. Are they? Are they? Are they so low that they might be discouraging some exploration development of, of these shale gas fields? Well, you know, on a historical basis, uh, recent history, uh, they're relatively low. I think it's around $4.20 an MCF currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but notwithstanding that, there is uh, record drilling for natural gas in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the United States uh, driven by the shale plays. So obviously companies are making money at these prices. Mm-hmm. And how does the reasons yeah, I'm sorry. prices remain low? Sorry, that's one of the reasons prices remain low. In addition to the destruction of demand as a result of the uh, uh, the recession that we find ourselves in. Sure. Well, how does the current price of, of natural gas um, compare with a barrel of oil, for example, at the present time? Well, oil today, I think the West Texas price is somewhere in the mid-80s, uh, high-80s. Uh, the ratio, I think it's somewhere around, uh, where would that put us, uh, high-20s? 
the ratio oil price to gas price. Mm. Traditionally, it's closer to the 10 to 13 mm-hmm. ratio. Mm-hmm. So it's historically high, the discrepancy between gas and oil. But there are two different markets, really. Uh, the oil price is is much more impacted by the international market. Sure. Uh, the gas price is set uh, within North America because we have a captured market here. Um, the oil price obviously being more susceptible to worldwide transport of crude mm-hmm. and, and the gas market not being influenced by that. Uh, within mm-hmm. the uh, North American market, mm-hmm. we, uh, you know, we rely, of course, on oil. A lot of oil imports for the uh, production of gasoline. Here in New York City, I know that some of the buses are run on natural gas. Do so you see that as a possibility going forward? That that we might have more transportation energy coming from natural gas. Well, I think uh, I think that's definitely the way that we will be heading. Uh, you have to ask yourself why ExxonMobil would have uh, made a purchase of XTO Energy. I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, I believe it was in the range of $40 billion mm-hmm. uh, for shale gas assets. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it would seem logical to think that the big petroleum producers uh, see the long-term horizon and um, – see natural gas as being a logical uh, mobile fuel source and uh, transportation is the one area obviously where uh, uh, oil has traditionally uh, been the um, fuel of choice because it's a mobile source Um, the trick is to get natural gas into cylinders into vehicles and uh, have filling stations available uh, similar to uh, to existing uh, gasoline filling stations, mm-hmm. and then you have a very very uh, sustainable, uh, high economic impact source of energy because you can uh, fuel your transportation fleets. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly would seem to be a game changer, as you put it. But speaking of game changers, there are some concerns, a lot of concerns, in fact. And I, I guess you know it's it's hard to be objective about this, but I pick up the New York Times some time ago and there was a big article in the Sunday paper about the environmental concerns of natural gas. And uh, there were there was a case, I think, of a farm in Pennsylvania where the farmers sold the rights to extract the gas and they ended up polluting their water supply and it um, basically damaged uh, and ruined their farm. What concerns, I mean, it's, and, and I know in New York State where we, Receive. We have some of the cleanest water of any major city here in New York City than anybody in the world. We get it from upstate New York, and there's concerns that the New York water supply could be poisoned with uh, natural gas. So, what what are the what's the reality? As a geologist, you're in a position perhaps to help our our people, our listeners understand what are the risks and the rewards, and and how safe can this form of extraction be? Uh, how uh, you know how likely is it that that we can avoid any major catastrophes uh, exploiting this this wonderful natural resource? Yes, based on the initial uh, operations in in some of the uh, uh, the New York, New York experiences, there are legitimate concerns about the environment. But I think it's like any new technology, uh, if used properly, uh, I think the rewards justify the risks. But, uh, again, like any new technology, uh, operators don't know how to use it uh, properly 
on the front end. Mm-hmm. There's a learning curve that's involved. Mm-hmm. I think what we saw in New York State and, and a couple of other incidents were companies going in and fracking these wells without properly cementing surface casing. When you when you drill an oil well, you actually uh, cement in iron pipe as you go deeper. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that is to ensure that the aquifers uh, and the shallow formations are not infiltrated by fluids mm-hmm. deeper in the well. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the fracking occurs um, thousands of meters below the water table. Mm-hmm. And when these wells are constructed properly, proper engineering is done, there's very, very low risk that any of the gas or fracking fluids would enter into the water table or aquifers. Mm-hmm. But again, if the uh, wells are not designed properly, uh, if they're not drilled uh, if the operations are not implemented properly, there can be problems. Mm-hmm. So it's one of uh, regulatory requirements and enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, sometimes we have to learn that the hard way. Uh, there's exuberance on the, on the front end of some of these new technologies, and, you know, the early guys out of the gate can be some, uh, sometimes careless. Yeah. And unfortunately, it gives a black eye to the industry. You know, fracking of oil and gas wells has been around for probably a hundred years, really. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it started off, believe it or not, with guys throwing sticks of uh, dynamite down well bores uh, <laughs> to uh, fracture the rock. Obviously, we've evolved a long ways from that. But the, uh, the pressure fluid fracking is a standard oil field practice that's been around for 30 or 40 years. What's changed in recent time is that we are fracking horizontal wells. Traditionally, we're just dealing with vertical wells. Now we're dealing with these wells that are drilled vertically. Then they deviate, deviate out into a horizontal geometry, and we've, uh, we've uh, generated the ability to frack the horizontal legs. But again, uh, properly done, very, very low risk of damage to aquifers. Mm-hmm. Well, uh Patrick, I want to, you are a natural gas exploration company, Vulcan Minerals is the company you head up. Uh, you have some projects in um, Newfoundland, well that's where you're operating in Newfoundland and, and offshore Labrador. Uh, the Bay Street George, I think, uh, in western Newfoundland, talk to us about that. Yeah, we are, uh, we're a frontier small company, uh, Jay, as you know. Uh, we're a frontier explorer in western Newfoundland. We're exploring a new basin. There's no production there currently. It's a sedimentary basin that had a lot of indications that there, were, uh, there was petroleum in it. Uh, we've gone in and, and done the geological and geophysical um, work required to prove up drill targets. Uh, we've drilled uh, nine wells in the Bay St. George Basin. Uh, our acreage position is about a quarter of a million acres mm-hmm. uh, that we share with uh, another partner, 50-50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've uh, made a gas discovery and an oil discovery. We have a gas discovery in tight sandstone reservoirs uh, that we're currently evaluating. Uh, we're waiting on equipment actually to do some uh, fracking of those reservoirs to determine exactly what the flow rates are going to be. Uh, at the same time, we've discovered a shallow oil pool. Um, it's similar to a heavy oil pool, actually, uh, from its engineering perspective. Uh, we're cur-
currently in the middle of a drilling program. Uh, we're going to drill uh, five uh, coring holes. We've completed uh, three of them, and the purpose there is to extract uh, rock from that reservoir so we can do detailed reservoir engineering analysis on it and come up with a pilot project to extract that oil. Because the oil is heavy, we have to put some energy into that reservoir, mm -hmm. uh, which in most likelihood would include uh, steam injection or hot water injection, mm -hmm. and then uh, pump that back and, and separate the petroleum. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, those are two, uh, two new discoveries in a new basin. We're very excited about it. Uh, that had to be classified as unconventional in the sense it's going to take, uh, it's going to take further work before we can quantify exactly how much petroleum is there and, again, how much we can recover from it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Bay St. George area is, is, is our uh, main project that we've been focused on for the last five or six years. Yeah, you have a couple of others. You have an offshore um you have an offshore discovery too, I believe. Is that not right? Is it the Hopedale Basin offshore Labrador? Well, we we have uh, export. Yeah, we have exploration acreage um, mm -hmm. offshore Labrador. Uh, again, we're we're uh, I think it's a half a million acres in size. Uh, we bid on these lands uh, about two two and a half years ago, uh, a competitive auction process. And we were successful in obtaining an exploration license in this Hopedale Basin. Um, we are in between uh, two, uh, three licenses, one on either end uh, that were successfully bid by Husky Oil, uh, a large uh, Canadian international company, and, and of course Chevron is offsetting us as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, you know, we're in uh, elephant territory as a small company. We worked up these plays. Uh, based on our geological knowledge of the area. Last year, we completed uh, uh, a $9 million seismic survey in conjunction with our partners, Invescan Energy. It's a private Canadian company owned and controlled by a group from France. Uh, they underwrote uh, the cost of that seismic program. Mm -hmm. uh, and in return, we, we transferred 20% of our interest to them as consideration. So we own currently a 30% working interest in that exploration uh, block. Um, the target there, again, is, is gas, but it's, it's conventional natural gas. Um, the uh, potential prize there is, is very large. Uh, we're thinking that uh, it could contain up to 10 trillion cubic feet of natural gas based mm. on the regional scale of the targets that we're seeing. Hmm. We haven't done any resource evaluation on it yet that would be compliant with any uh, reserve resource numbers. Uh, we're currently finalizing the interpretation of that seismic data that we shot last summer. Mm -hmm. So uh, our strategy there, Jay, is to um, work up that data and to market the project to a larger company mm -hmm. and, and uh, hopefully get somebody in there to do some drilling on our behalf and maintain a small interest. But it's an exciting project, sure. and it allows us to uh, punch a little bit beyond our weight class, so to speak. Yeah. Well, indeed, I mean, you're such a minuscule market cap, and I guess maybe one of the reasons, in spite of the fact that you have you know, some real promising assets here, uh, one of the reasons for the small market cap is it takes forever. I mean, if you're looking for instant gratification, this is not uh, early exploration plays are not the place to be, to be but honestly, uh, when they hit, uh, the, the upside is 
is tremendous. But there is one uh, aspect of your business. I know uh, you have a potash play that you're going to be spinning out to Vulcan shareholders pretty soon. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, Jay, you're right. You know, uh, Frontier Oil and Gas stories have got a, a long timeline compared to the mineral projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you need patience when you're dealing with these uh, frontier projects on the oil and gas side. Um, as is often the case, uh, when you're drilling for oil and gas deposits in certain types of sedimentary basins that have evaporite deposits, you, you can discover potash. And that's what happened in our Bay St. George project in western Newfoundland. This sedimentary basin had an evaporite uh, phase within the geological record. And what that is 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 effectively you had a shallow sea that evaporated. Mm -hmm. And all the salt that's contained in that seawater gets deposited uh, in the geological record. And within that uh, salt deposit consists uh, a potash zone. We've intersected it with uh, two wells in the Bay St. George area. We're seeing grades uh, upwards of 20% potassium oxide, Mm. which is ore grade. We're seeing widths up to 5 meters in gross width, which is uh, mineable width. The challenge we have here with the the potash is to prove excuse me, uh, sufficient tonnage. Mm-hmm. What that will require is uh, about a, a four- to six-hole program. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is we've uh, we've created a subsidiary within Vulcan called Red Moon Potash Inc. Mm-hmm. It's currently a private company. We've gone through the regulatory process to get approvals to mm-hmm. spin this company out as a new public company which will be traded on the uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Division. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're expecting it to get listed in, within the next 90 days. Mm-hmm. What that will allow us to do is to put the potash and salt assets in Red Moon and to finance it um, separately uh, and then to drill those uh, holes that are required to determine whether or not there's sufficient tonnage there. So existing shareholders of Vulcan Minerals, will receive uh, a distribution, a free distribution of shares in Red Moon Potash. Mm-hmm. We're currently thinking that the ratio is going to be one share of, of Red Moon for every 3.8 shares of Vulcan. Mm-hmm. That, that is susceptible to, to some modification. Mm-hmm. But it gives you an idea of the scale of the distribution. And it's, you know, it's a... Uh, it's, it's a nice distribution to give our Vulcan shareholders that have been with us for the last several years, uh, demonstrating the patience that's required to deal with the frontier oil and gas story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, be the beneficiary of a potash story, which has, frankly, a lot more appeal in the market today because these mm-hmm. agricultural stories are sure. front and center for a whole raft sure. of reasons. So we're sure. pretty excited about it. Yep. Sure. And if I understand, I believe the location here may have uh, something uh, favorable to do with the uh, potential economic viability of it. Is that right? Are you located close to a port or Exactly. We are uh, within six kilometers of a deep water port mm-hmm. with our discovery hole. Um, we have paved highways going through this property. We have a high voltage uh, hydroelectricity coming through this property. Uh, we have an airport within 20 uh, minutes of the property. Uh, so our infrastructure is excellent. And when you're close to the ocean, of course, you're on the pipeline of the world. 
Uh, now, the largest uh, potash um, producer in the world, Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan, uh, which operates um, several world-class mines in western Canada, uh, they also have a mine in eastern Canada, hmm. in New Brunswick, which is a few hundred kilometers from our project, but geologically it's next door. It's in the same geological sedimentary basin. Mm -hmm. So that's the analog that we point to. Mm -hmm. They have a mine at Sussex in New Brunswick, mm -hmm. which they've been mining for the last decade or more mm -hmm. at about 800,000 tons of potash per year. Mm -hmm. uh, they're currently expanding their mine to 2 million tons per mm -hmm. year, which will put it on a world-scale uh, size mine. Uh, they are mining exactly the same rocks that we are looking at in, in our Bay St. George project mm -hmm. and where we've discovered potash. Mm -hmm. So we're saying to ourselves, wow, if we actually go in uh, into our project and drill some holes that are specifically designed to test the areas with the best potash potential, then we have a legitimate opportunity to discover a world-class potash deposit. Mm -hmm. uh, that you, is don't forget that we, we encountered this potash while looking for petroleum. So we're not necessarily putting the holes in the optimum uh, locations. That is, uh, that's very interesting. It's, it's also, it, it strikes me as the potential here for something quicker than you might gain with your natural gas uh, plays that we were just talking about. If you need to drill four to six holes, I'm assuming these are probably shallow near surface holes, right? They, yeah, they are uh, They're shallow. They're going to be in the order of 600 meters deep. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They do take uh, more time than your traditional mining holes because you actually have to drill an oil and gas well. Mm -hmm. You have to construct uh, a well with a uh, closed circulation system, uh, blowout prevention, because you are in an area where you could have natural gas uh, deposits. Mm -hmm. So you had to be prepared from a safety perspective mm -hmm. and from an environmental perspective mm -hmm. to construct the wells properly. But we're looking at a drilling program commencing in the spring of 2012 and that we would initially drill three, uh, three holes out of the gate and, and test those three areas that we've prioritized. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a 2012 drilling program. Um, this winter we will be doing all the permitting required to access those areas. The area that we're operating in is, is highly accessible. Uh, the area has been logged for about, I guess, 80 or 90 years. There are pulp and paper, mill, uh, paper mills in the area. Mm -hmm. So we have an excellent network of, of uh, woods uh, trails, and, and uh, we can go pretty much anywhere we want on the property in terms of access, and that's a big mm -hmm. bonus. Mm -hmm. So this is for the patient shareholders that have been with you for years and years, people listening to this show. If they uh, buy some Vulcan minerals now yet, um, they can. Uh, they don't have to be as patient as all your, your uh, long-suffering um, shareholders have been. They can go in now and, and get possibly uh, one share for every 3.8 shares of Vulcan or something on that order very soon. Any idea how long that might hold true? How much time do people have to buy your shares before uh, before they no longer get the spinoff benefit? Yeah, we, we've not picked the distribution record dates yet. We're currently uh, dealing with the uh, regulators in terms of a listing application. Uh, so it's a matter of going back and forth with some documentation that we need to finalize mm -hmm. and to put together a financing. Mm -hmm. We're looking at financing Red Moon uh, either late this year or early 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, the scale of that financing is probably going to be in the order of 3 to $6 million. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, that's very interesting, and I, I think uh, listeners may want to check out Vulcan. Uh, and I guess your website would be what where people can go and learn more would be Vulcan yeah, Minerals. Yeah, uh, of course, www.vulcanminerals.ca. Vulcan that's V-U-L-C-A-N, minerals.ca. Patrick, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we conclude our discussion today? Uh, no, I think that's pretty much it, Jay. We've yeah. kind of hit all the bases. Hit, yeah. A lot going on. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of like in some ways like watching paint dry with some of these companies, but you know, finally, uh, you know, some really large returns can be can be gained. We're talking about a market cap that I think we said is something like $15 million or something, for goodness sakes. And so with a spin out and all that, it's certainly a company that I want to take a closer look at, possibly, possibly included in my newsletter as well. I want to thank you very much, Patrick, for sharing your insights, your knowledge of the industry with our listeners. Well, that's all the time we have now, uh, but don't go away because coming back after the break, I'm going to have Ingrid Hibbard with me. She is the president and CEO of Planjo Exploration. That's a company that's doing quite well, actually, in exploring and developing a gold, two gold deposits, actually, in West Africa. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Ingrid Hibbard. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Merix Gold, with over 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits in West Mali, Africa. Merix and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $17 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 40,000 meters of diamond and reverse circulation drilling currently underway to expand Merix's indicated resource and to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. Exploration also continues on the huge gold anomaly at Zone Bambadinka, as well as the major gold system on the Babara and Kofia permits. Welcome to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I should tell you that Ingrid Hibbard will be here next week. Actually, our show ran on too long. Uh, we did some pre-recordings before I went off to Asia, and uh, the two interviews that we did with um, Mr. Larisa and also uh, Mr. Adnani uh, ran longer than I expected. So uh, Ingrid will be here next week to talk about uh, her company's progress in um, in uh, Ghana, West Africa, where things are going very, very well. Indeed, a very exciting story. You'll want to listen in next week to Ingrid Hibbard. Well, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ all got taken down real hard again today. I think this is 
we're going to see much more of this to come because I believe this deleveraging process is just still in the early stages. We've got a long ways to run. There's way too much debt in the global economy, especially in the Western world, and that has to get taken down. And with a deleveraging process, it's going to be very, very difficult to see the kind of uh, to to enjoy the kind of growth that the folks in the West have been accustomed to. I believe it means that for the masses of people, it's going to uh, to be uh, to result in a declining living standard. And we're seeing protests uh, on Wall Street, um, Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, and others. People are really becoming very unhappy, but I think uh, there's going to be a lot more, unfortunately, a lot more unhappiness to go. There's going to have to be a cutback in spending from government. There's going to have to be a cutback, I believe, in the United States military spending. Uh, and that we've been involved, I think, uh, overseas in the military uh, to a great extent, I believe, um, not for the stated purposes of, of, of killing people and going to battle, but basically for um, to a great extent for energy and for economic interests, but energy is a big part of that. So I think the news that we heard today uh, from Pat Laracy and from Amira Nanny about the energy possibilities in America is very, very positive. Uh, so I, I think that uh, we, we want to keep track of those industries. I'm just not terribly bullish on uh, the energy industries right now because of this very bearish view that I take on the um, on the global uh, on the global economy. But uh, there there is going to be obviously a need as long as we remain in uh, in sort of modern times and we don't go back to the Stone Age. Uh, God forbid, but uh, as long as we remain in modern times, there's going to be a need for energy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these are areas I think we want to focus on, and there are some very exciting stories. Mart uh, Resources being one, for sure, that uh, that I like a lot, and it's a company that I've been investing in myself. It's Chen Lin's favorite stock pick. Well, next week we're going to talk more about deflation, and Ms. Shedlack will be with me. Mish Shedlack, uh, renowned deflationist, is going to be back, and we'll hear what Mish has to say about the um, uh, about his views uh, going forward. And we will also try to apply that to our investments, uh, the stock picks that we make in this letter. That's all the time we have for now. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the theme about time is that time is important.